Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 53 of Unknown Orbits, The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitzey. This is one of the most highly acclaimed, most famous stories in science fiction history. I'm glad that we finally got around to talking about it. I really enjoyed the opportunity to reread this after many years, and it held up wonderfully. Basically, the plot of The Cold Equations involves the pilot of an emergency dispatch ship sent out to deliver important vaccines to a mining colony in a remote part of the galaxy that's experiencing an outbreak of a pandemic. On his way there, he discovers a female stowaway, a young 18-year-old girl on board his ship who stowed away with the idea of being able to visit her brother who happened to be working at that colony. Unfortunately, due to very limited fuel capacity for this ship, these ships are emergency ships. They're small ships that are designed to react to an emergency delivering supplies or rescuing someone or something like that. So they have a very thin margin of error when it comes to their fuel capacity. I'd like to say Godwin sets it up at the beginning, telling you that this is the box the story has to take place. No exceptions. He sets it up perfectly, answers every question in the beginning. And the main character runs his own calculations. Then he calls back to headquarters and asks them to confirm his calculations. And they come back and they agree that unfortunately... There's no way that the two of them can reach this planet and land safely together. So in order for him to be able to deliver the supplies and save all of these miners on this planet, she has to go. She has to go out the airlock. And there are all these other lives involved. Right. It's hundreds or dozens of people who are going to die if he doesn't deliver this medicine to the miners. So it's a philosophical conundrum, but once it becomes clear via the cold equations that there's no way that she can stay on board the ship and that he can complete his mission, the rest of the story is her coming to terms with this, realizing that she's going to have to basically commit suicide in order to save all of these other people. It's reminiscent of those stories you hear when Someone gets trapped between the subway car and the platform. Like, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the science fiction movie Signs with Mel Gibson, where the backstory of that is, and they show a flashback, his wife gets in a car accident, and she's pinned between a tree and the car, and she's dying, and he gets there just in time to hold her hand and watch her die. And that's his dark backstory that forces him to question his religion which comes into play later in the story. That's a bit of a diversion there, but it's exactly the same sort of thing, is realizing you're going to die and facing it with grace, basically. Yeah. That's what makes this a beautiful story. That last part where 
you know, there's resistance to the truth of the matter by the young girl, then sorrow at what's going to happen to her, and then finally acceptance, where she winds up writing farewell letters to her family. It's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of science fiction I've ever read. And a landmark story, really, because prior to that, science fiction was filled with these insolvable problems being solved. And this was published in Astounding Magazine, August 1954, under John W. Campbell's leadership. So it very much fits the pattern of the problem-solving story, which we're so familiar with, mainly from Astounding Magazines, where a problem is created, a puzzle, you know, something that needs to be solved. And by the end of the story, the main characters find a way to overcome and triumph and solve the problem, which, interestingly is what Tom Godwin originally did. Oh, His original version of the story, he found a way to rescue her. He found a way to save her from being killed. Some MacGuffin of a barrel of rocket yeah. fuel being found in space or, or something. something. Yeah, But to his great credit, John W. Campbell said, no, I want you to kill her. And he forced Godwin to rewrite the story several times until he got to the version that we have today where she dies. And that's what makes it a great story. Because otherwise it would have been just another goddamn astounding magazine problem-solving story. Instead, instant classic. Instant classic, absolutely, and rightly so. So it's in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. If you were to query critics or writers as to what are the 20 great science fiction stories of all time, many of them would have cold equations on that list. Yeah. Of all the stories that we've done so far in our year here with Unknown Orbits, this is right up there at the top. It's right up there with one or two other stories that we've done that I just consider to be perfect. It almost slips into being a mainstream story. Yeah, and it's been anthologized many times, and it's probably one of the stories that a lot of non-science fiction readers might have run across at some point or another, because it's such an unusual and almost startling ending to a story. And to me, it really elevates science fiction to art, because it's hard to think of the same story being told in anything but a science fiction form. Yeah. I mean, what other form would you have where there is a resource limitation that is so severe that you have to kill somebody in order to continue? Yeah. I think science fiction is the only form where you could have told this particular story. You can't get that kind of isolation in anything else except maybe like an Antarctic base. Well, I was thinking if you had like a lifeboat story. Yeah. You know, where there's three people in a lifeboat and there's only enough food to last two people. But even then, you wouldn't have the hard deadline that forces the issue. Right. You know, you could see someone being sacrificed in the lifeboat story, but it would be morally ambiguous at best, where in this case, there is no morality here. That's what the cold equations means, is it's divorced from morality. It's not a question of what's right or wrong. It's a question of, do you sacrifice the lives of many for the lives of one person? The, the person who has done something incredibly stupid and selfish, that if you save her, you kill dozens of innocent people. 
we are at the mercy of physics. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. And again, I could only ever see that in a science fiction story. So if I ever got in an argument with somebody about the validity of science fiction or whether it's good literature, I would say, well, read this story. And you tell me if you could have told this story any other way except in a science fiction setting. You know, I kind of plagiarized this story like 30 years ago, accidentally. It did not sell. We've all done that. But it's interesting that you should mention plagiarism because there were two stories that appeared two years previous to the publication of The Cold Equations. That is a real surprise to me. You'd think if they were similar, they would have been known. Well, Do you know what magazines they were in? Well, let me give you the background, and then you can tell me whether you think it's likely that he might have run across these two stories. So the first one was EC Comics' Weird Science comic book, A Weighty Decision, written by Al Feldstein, illustrated by the incomparable Wally Wood. Wally Wood is one of my favorite artists in comic book history. He was an expert at drawing spaceships, astronauts in cool spacesuits, and busty, curvy women in tight-fitting spacesuits. I'm already going to say it's unlikely that Tom Godwin saw that. Well, maybe, maybe not. This was an EC comic. They were fairly popular back in the days. But it is a virtually identical story about a excess passenger, and they have to be jettisoned in order to save the rest of the crew. Ouch. But the other one is a story called Precedent by Charles Gray in something called New Worlds Magazine. That was a very minor magazine, I believe. That was an English magazine, too. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Again, that would probably argue against him having seen it, but I actually read it. It's available on the Internet Archive, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's very similar, but it's terrible. It's a really badly written, terrible piece of writing. It had absolutely zero subtlety whatsoever. But again, if you read it, you're like, yeah, this story sure sounds familiar. You know, this brings up another argument. Is it really plagiarism if someone writes something really poorly and you take their basic idea? Now, by the way, there is a legal definition of plagiarism, which we're getting nowhere near. But I'm talking about a writer's sense of plagiarism. Is it right or wrong to take someone's basic idea from a really, really poorly written story and doing it really well. You know, as a writer, that's a good point. I would almost argue in favor of that being okay. Because like I said, precedent is just terrible. It's just absolutely a terrible, terrible written story. I think a good example to point to that we've talked about previously on the show is A.E. Van Vogt's Voyage of the Space Beagle, which was allegedly plagiarized by the writers of the movie Alien. Oh, And yes. if you read it, you will see there's very clear similarities. And Van Vogt received an out-of-court settlement from the producers over that bit of plagiarism. I would argue that this plagiarism, certainly with precedent, is far clearer than the case with Van Vogt and The Voyage of the Space Beagle. If there's a connection, this makes me sad. I mean, could you accept the possibility that maybe there was something in the news at the time that triggered the same thought for two people? You know, maybe, maybe that's possible. The funny thing, the weird, the weird, weird 
thing is that both the EC comic story and precedent were published in May 1952. So those two stories were published in the same month. Interesting. Which is weird in itself that two identical stories. Now, if precedent would have been written six months before the comic book story appeared, because the EC Comics Weird Science and Science Fantasy, I think it was, regularly adapted science fiction stories. They adapted a bunch of Bradbury stories. So they were taking stories out of the science fiction magazines. So if their story would have appeared six months after precedent, then I would have said, oh yeah, they copied it from him. Then that would have been almost clearly a case of plagiarism. But they appeared exactly at the same time, which is so bizarre. But Campbell made Godwin change the ending. Maybe it's more likely that Campbell knew of the story. I mean, he was an editor. He'd be reading the competitors' magazines all along. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when he gets Godwin's story, it reminds him of that one. You know, maybe he even thought, okay, it was badly written. No one remembers it, but he liked the ending. So he gives the ending to Godwin. Right. So if you really wanted to call it plagiarism, you could... But then it would be like secondhand plagiarism. That's really interesting. But still, what Godwin wrote was so great that even if he did plagiarize it, I don't care. As we said, it's an example of taking something far inferior and making it something way better. Like Elamagusa. Right, which if you want to learn more about plagiarism or possible plagiarism, please check out our previous episode on Elamagusa. So anyway, this was... So well-known and popular, it was adapted a number of times. But not everybody thinks this is a fantastic, great classic story. There's a gentleman named Cory Doctorow who wrote an article trashing the cold equations. He called it a contrivance, the whole limited resources aspect of the story, the fact that there was no margins for safety, that you know there's just barely enough fuel to complete the mission. He called that a contrivance, and he said there was no autopilot. If they would have had an autopilot, it could have landed the ship safely, even with the two of them on board. He said there should have been more of a safety margin. And then he goes on to say that by writing a story like this, where you artificially create a crisis by limiting the factors in the story— to compel a terrible thing to be done, and there's nothing that can be done to stop the terrible thing, that that creates a moral hazard. What? I know, yes. So moral hazard, for those of you who haven't run across the term, is an activity that's tolerated that encourages people to engage in immoral behavior. So in the financial realm, that would be if you fail to regulate banks to prevent them from doing extremely reckless things with your money and they wound up losing all of your money, that's an example of a moral hazard, that you have to have laws and regulations that prevent people or discourage people from doing things that are fundamentally wrong and immoral. 
And he also threw in the caveat that this sort of thinking was a boon to authoritarians. So that basically, if you say, well, there's nothing that can be done because the cold equations tell us we have to murder somebody, to him, that's encouraging an authoritarianism. Okay. So I gather you have some thoughts on that. Uh, Yes. um, And I'm calm now. (laughs) I would say if you take a careful look at Cory Doctorow's review of this story, Mm -hmm. I think you should agree that he's a fucking idiot. What is a story other than a contrivance? Is his favorite book, that famous Tom Clancy book, which is three pages long because the president picked up the phone and negotiated a solution to the problem, and then it's all over? Because that's what they could have done. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, that's the essence of writing fiction. One of the most profound things that you can come to understand as a fiction writer is that everything in your story is under your control. Yes. You control every element of the story, and you're God. You know, you can create the situation that you put your characters in. You can create the way that they get out of a situation. You can hide information from your readers until it's important. You can lie to your readers. You can mislead your readers. There's a million things you can do as a writer That is your prerogative. Actually, your imperative as a writer is to do all kinds of things that manipulate the situation to tell a good story. I I got a story. I've mentioned before that my mother wrote some big little books. Mm -hmm. And in one of them, she had this problem to the point where it was discussed generally. She wanted the ducks to combine a semi-magical crystal with a super battery to create a weapon. And she's saying, yeah, I got as far as saying, okay, it's a gun and the crystal goes here and the battery goes there. So what do I do? She was a professional writer for a couple decades before this point, And yet she stumbled over this until she suddenly realized, like anyone else, oh, wires connect them. That's it. Don't care. Not explaining. Yep. Just do a hand pass over it and say, make it so. Yeah. And that's what you do as a writer. You know, this idea that Somehow doing what Godwin wanted to do in the first place, which was save the girl at the end, which would have been, as we said just a few minutes ago, a fairly pedestrian problem-solving story, that that was a better choice than what John W. Campbell insisted on, which was, no, you have to kill her. And that's the whole point of the story. And that is, that is the whole point of the story, is you constructed a scenario where killing an 18-year-old innocent girl made sense and was inevitable yeah. and was moral. And that's probably what he's objecting to is saying, well, you're saying that it's moral to kill an 18-year-old girl, which it never should be a moral thing. But that's the whole point of fiction, and especially science fiction, which is speculative. You say, what if? What if there was a situation where killing an innocent 18-year-old girl was the moral choice. That's how you get this story, is you ask that question, and you answer it, and you answer it beautifully. It's the trolley problem. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely the trolley problem. We're going to put a link to Dr. O's article in the show notes, so if you want to read that and get equally incensed, 
Or maybe you agree with them. Maybe you think that it is a wrong choice for a writer to murder an 18-year-old girl and say, oops, nothing we can do about it. Oh, well, you know. I don't have a lot of respect for Cory Doctorow or his opinions. I don't know if it's fair to bring that up. I'm not real familiar with him, so I can't really comment. But this one article, it just had steam coming out of my ears. Well, this morning I had a thought. He was a co-founder of Boing Boing. It had built an audience of 13-year-olds who love him. When you start digging into it and you get past that first layer of fanboys, most of the reviews kind of average around adequate. Yeah. He's only written a handful of novels, like nine, nine novels over 20 years. This morning it occurred to me that Cory Doctorow is tomato soup. Uh, what? <laughs> You've never had soup before. You're like 14, 15 years old. Someone gives you tomato soup. And oh my God, this is great stuff. I love this tomato soup. I want some more of this tomato soup. It's great. I bought a t-shirt that has tomato soup on it. And then you get a little bit older and then you discover other soups. And then you realize, you know, tomato soup is just tomato soup. And the t-shirt goes next to the ACDC t-shirt in the closet. Or you've never had soup before. And you have tomato soup and you go, oh, this is disgusting. <laughs> and you never have soup ever again the rest of your life because of tomato soup. Which, by the way, I, I hate tomato soup. So anyway, that was a pretty interesting take on this, which is very much in the minority. As I said, you query a bunch of writers and critics and they'll all put this story on the all-time great list. Yeah, It's widely considered to be one of the greatest. Honestly, I can say that Doc Taro's is the only negative review i've ever seen on this yeah. story you know being a contrarian sometimes that can get you somewhere in life oh is he well apparently sure sounds like one to me okay so this was so popular and so beloved it was adapted a bunch of times the first one that i came up with was a tv show called out of this world a british tv show which was in 1962 it had a brief run on British television, hosted by Boris Karloff. And most of the episodes of the show are lost forever. So we can't see this particular episode. Is that the one where the only surviving episode is Little Lost Robot? Yes. Okay. It's like one episode, and that's all that's left of it. The BBC had this awful tendency to race. Like the first season or two of Doctor Who, most of it is missing because of this practice. I recently saw a reference to how much those reels of tape cost at the time. A mm -hmm. $100 each at the time, which is something like six, $800 now. Right. So you could see some of their point. Yeah, boneheaded. But the reason I wanted to just spotlight this one is it has two interesting actors in it. Peter Wingard, who I love. He was in a lot of stuff in the 1960s. He's kind of a cool, interesting actor. And then the actress playing the girl was Jane Asher, who was a, a 1960s icon. She was Paul McCartney's girlfriend at one point. Uh, was she a model originally? Yeah, she was like a model. She was very pretty. She's a blonde, very, very pretty, kind of petite. She actually was a child actress in the Quatermass Experiment, a movie we've talked about in a previous episode. I do get those mixed up. Was that the first one? That was the first one. The okay. first one done by Hammer. So she was like an icon of the 1960s. It would have been nice to see that particular episode. It was also adapted when they rebooted The Twilight Zone in the 1980s. 
if you remember that. No, I missed that. Yeah, the new Twilight Zone. So they did an adaptation of it. The Sci-Fi Channel made it into a movie. I don't know how you make a whole movie out of it, but they made a movie in 1996. So it was adapted several times, which is a measurement of its popularity, wider popularity outside of science fiction. I believe it was also an episode of the radio show X-1. If I'm correct, I'll include a link. I'm sure it must have been. I'd be shocked if it wasn't, because it would lend itself really well to a radio adaptation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can see that. So I don't really have anything additional other than just to reinforce how I really love this story. So well written. It contrasts the comfort and ease of life on Earth, which is exemplified by the young girl, with the brutal and harsh reality of the frontier, you know, which is everything you do, every step you take is life and death, which is something that Dr. O didn't even mention in his criticism. And if you know anything about space travel, that is scientifically accurate that, you know, having a remote outpost in a science fiction novel where you're far away from resupply or rescue or anything like that is going to be very perilous. Yeah. So it does a really good job of playing with all those different factors, including the human factor, which is beautiful. I got nothing more to say about it. Anything you want to add? I have one last thought. This is a lot like Jack London's To Build a Fire. Yes, it is. You make one mistake and that's it. Yep. Well, actually, in that case, it's like three mistakes Ah. to build a fire. He makes like three mistakes. I only count the last one, building the fire under the tree. Right, right. All right, well, that's it for episode 53. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X minus one. Tonight's story, Cold Equations. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.